Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I am your moderator, John Viola, coming to you right in the middle of this wonderful month we call Italian American Heritage Month, and really happy to be back out there with everybody on this fine Monday in October. It's been an incredible Italian American month so far. Last week, I hope everybody enjoyed our uh, part one Columbus Day episode, the history of the holiday. It's elicited a ton of responses in uh, social media and through email and, and the people that we're speaking to, uh, both good and bad, and that's uh, kind of what we expected. So hope you guys have listened to it. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, when it was released on Columbus Day, myself, Pat, and Rosella, and some of our friends were lucky enough to be part of the Columbus Day Parade here in New York City. It was a beautiful, beautiful day, unseasonably warm, and we were able to march with uh, our red, white, and green all over the place up Fifth Avenue in New York City, uh, see some of our friends that we don't get to see too often when everybody collects together in this great day of Italian pride. And we were uh, we were on the newest float in the parade uh, that we put together as a partnership between the Italian Sons and Daughters of America, the ISDA, awesome organization that's headquartered out in Pittsburgh but uh, has chapters all over the country. And uh, last year, before we started this project uh, and joined up to the Italian American Podcast, Pat, Rosella, Dolores, and Anthony and I, uh, we all put together three new lodges, three of the newest in the country, uh, two in New Jersey and one uh, right here in New York City. And uh, ISDA was one of the newest additions to the parade, along with a great float from Mother Cabrini that was put together. A um, lot of movement on that front, a lot of support for the statue. As a matter of fact, New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, announced that he was going to make sure a statue to her was built in New York City on Columbus Day. Uh, which was a really great thing for the Italian American community. So lots of stuff going on, and uh, we really enjoyed ourselves. The float was great, the music was great, the route was fun, a lot of interesting people, and just a really joyous environment for people to get together, celebrate their heritage. If you are interested in becoming a part of what we're doing with the ISDA, you are encouraged to look at orderisda.org, see all the fine work that they do, and hey, if you want, become a member of our Italian American Experience Lodge. Um, Great events that we do over the course of the year. You get priority invitation to. You get what I think is one of the best periodicals on the Italian-American experience in their newspaper that comes out every month. And it's just a really great group to be a part of, and uh, we encourage it. We'd love to meet everybody out in the audience and count you amongst our uh, our lodge. So it's something that you should definitely be thinking about. But it has been an amazing month so far with a lot of activity 
that we're proud to be a part of. Our T-shirts, our I Am Italian American T-shirts, I think many of you out there have seen them on our social media. They're available on the store on our website or at www.italianpower.com, which is our uh, online store. And uh, they're selling like hotcakes. I love seeing people out there with them on social media, tagging their pictures. It's a great piece of, uh, I think, pretty simple and bold uh, Italian-American design and uh, a great way to wear your pride. So we encourage everybody to go out and buy them for the family. All of the proceeds go to support what we're doing here at the show and some new projects that we're taking on as we expand our footprint to try to be more and more active in the Italian-American community. One of those things, which I would also encourage everybody to go out and do, is visit www.italiansurvey.com. And we have put together, as you heard a few episodes ago, what I think is a pretty interesting survey. Um, some of it serious subject matter, some of it a little bit more humorous, uh, inside the tribe kind of stuff. But we're getting amazing responses to that. I'm actually shocked at the amount of people that have taken it. But you know what? There's 25 million of us out there, and I won't be satisfied until everybody does. So that survey is available at italiansurvey.com and also on our website. It should be available on the top right corner button says survey. So pretty easy to find. But we really encourage you to take it and pass it along. And if you are a member of uh, a local group or uh, one of the larger national groups, please encourage the organizations to send it out and, uh, and get their membership to take it too. You know, we're not trying to do anything with this information other than understand our community so we can serve it better because that's a big deal to all of us. So you're probably wondering why I haven't introduced any other co-hosts, as many of you are expecting part two of our Columbus Day discussion. But I'm going to be really honest with you. It has been difficult for us to get the kind of voices that we want to get to have an even and objective conversation for this in the same room at the same time. And with the travel schedule that I have for Italian American Heritage Month, it's a little bit more limited, and I don't want to put out something that is not really well thought out and considerate because this is a huge issue. And people in our community, um, as I've seen over the years that I've worked in this community and encountered this Columbus Day issue, our community is really not in agreement on this, uh, no matter what anybody wants us to think. And there are people on all sides of the conversation, and rightfully so. And it's a sensitive topic, and it's not as simple as Italian-Americans um, and our day of pride. It's a much more complex topic. We tried to introduce that idea in last week's episode by sharing with you even the complexity of just the holiday and its history, let alone the issue and Columbus the man. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause the Columbus conversation. If you haven't listened to last week's episode on the history of the holiday, please do, because we're going to move the second part of the conversation to uh, next week's episode when I'm back in the country, because my wife and I are heading to a wedding overseas uh, this weekend. And hopefully we'll be able to get as diverse a collection of opinions as we want to, because, again, I think it's really important that we handle this with sensitivity and even-handedness and no agenda. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. Our community deserves a frank and fruitful conversation where all opinions are considered and where some of the things that we might not be thinking about or talking about or some of the perspectives that we might not have uh, are brought to light. I hate when I go online and I see entrenched positions and people screaming at each other. That does nothing in any topic, uh, let alone in a topic I care about, like how we present and preserve our Italian-American heritage. So we want to bring you the best conversation we can, and we ask your patience and indulgence for one more week as we really try to do that. But we do have what I hope is kind of an interesting show today, because this week I was asked to come out to Cleveland, Ohio, by some friends of mine from the Noya Foundation, the Northern Ohio Italian-American Foundation, and uh, I was invited to give a talk about the Southern Italian roots of Italian-American identity at their Columbus Week event. 
so it was really great to go out and see some of my friends, Nick and Angie and a bunch of the people that I've gotten to meet in the few times that I've been able to visit Cleveland. I uh, got to work with Noya over the years when I was at the National Italian American Foundation. Really fine group of good people, very generous in their community and beyond, and active at a national level, really participate as much as they can throughout Italian America. They've got a great Columbus Day parade there in Cleveland as well. They have the Feast of the Assumption. They even told me they have the Feast of St. Rocco every summer where they still do a greased pole. So you know where I'll be next year for the Feast of St. Rocco because there's very few places left where you can watch a gaggle of Italian-Americans clamber up a greased pole uh, like they've been doing for hundreds of years in Italy and here in the United States. So if I can see that, I want to see that live, and I'll be in Cleveland for St. Rocco next year, I promise. Um, So the topic was about our southern Italian roots, and we talk about it a lot, but I thought it'd be good following up the three episodes that we did a few years ago when Pat... Myself and Pat's brother Anthony were guests of Dolores and Anthony on the podcast then, uh, where we did talk about the South and its history and heritage and a, and a counter story to what's been out there in the history books. But because I had the opportunity to give a more concise presentation that was a little bit more, um, a little bit more linear in its history and, and, and sort of what I think goes from the introduction of a unified Southern Italian culture to today, um, I figured I would record it as best I could and share it with you guys out there in the audience. So you're going to get to hear my talk uh, in Cleveland the other night and think it'll spur some conversation. And there's some interesting statistics, in fact, and some things you might not have known. So I hope you enjoy it. Again, we'll be back with this Columbus Day topic in a couple of weeks, although I have to say it'll be nice to have a break because I hate to see Italian-Americans fighting one another. So I will welcome you now to Cleveland, Ohio. I think you'll enjoy this and, and learn some history that you might not have known. And I think it will definitely highlight some topics that we might want to speak about further in future episodes of the show and dedicate uh, some more time to the specific topics that we're going to cover very, very briefly here. But it was well received, and I think you guys will enjoy it. So join me now in Cleveland, Ohio, for a conversation we're calling Why We Are Neo-Bourbons. You got it? Uh, so first of all, thank you guys for having me out here. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, I've been able to work with Noya foundation uh, a little bit in the past through the National Italian American Foundation. So I've met some of you guys in my trips here or some of the other trips that uh, we're able to do in different cities across the country. But it's always nice to come back to Cleveland because I really think this is a town where the Italian community obviously works together, stays together. And uh, it reminds me a lot of my life in Brooklyn where you kind of have cast of characters and you know everybody. So on the show, we call that the tribe. So it's nice to be amongst the tribe. And uh, when Nick asked me to come out here, he said, talk about the South, which is something I do every day because this is kind of what I'm obsessed with. So I thought about it, and I thought about what I could do in a respectful amount of time so I wasn't boring everybody. But to kind of share with you what it is that drew me to these questions. Can everybody hear me, by the way? Okay. Um, So Nick and I are both part of a very, very ancient order of knights called the Constantinian Order of St. George. I, I doubt many people have heard of it. You might have heard of it, and if you did, it's probably from Nick. But uh, the Constantinian Order of St. George is under the grand mastership of a family called the Borbone delle Due Sicilie. They were the royal family of Naples and Sicily uh, from about 1734 until the Italian unification in 1860. And in modern southern Italy, there's a big movement called uh, Neo-Bourbonici, the Neo-Bourbonists. And so I've become involved with them and started to explore this history as I uh, got more and more involved. 
And so when I thought about what I could talk about, this question came up, why are we neo-Bourbonists? What does that mean and what is it leading to? And the reason that I think of myself in this way is because uh, I'm an Italian-American. And I think, frankly, most Italian-Americans, if they get a chance to learn the real history of Southern Italy, might consider themselves in some sense neo-Bourbonists too. So that's, that's why I wanted to frame it in this way. So uh, I've always been a student of Italian history from when I was a little kid. And I've been a collector of Italian artifacts since I was nine years old. My mother, her parents, and her grandparents all owned antique stores in New York and New Jersey. So we did this for fun, digging in dumpsters for furniture, going to flea markets, going to antique sales. And uh, this poster that I actually have in my office is one that kind of inspired me down this path. How, how many read Italian? Anybody read Italian here? Okay, so you can read it for yourself, but for those who can't, it's a post-World War II poster. It says 87% of the Italian-Americans in the United States have Southern origins. Um, remember your fatherland uh, for aid to Italy. Um, I don't know why it looks like John Candy's on there. I have no <laughs> idea. But I just, it, I look at John Candy every day by my desk. But I, I got to that number and I said to myself, 87% is a gigantic number. Anybody know how many Italian-Americans are in this country? It's a number that actually surpasses what most people would imagine. 18.2 million people on the last census wrote Italian or Italian-American on the line marked other. And demographically, they extrapolate out to about 25 million people with some Italian heritage. That's a significant number. And so... If that many people of Italian heritage are from the South, one has to ask themselves, why would 90% of that diaspora come from half the country? So, how many people have roots in Abruzzo? Molise? Puglia? Campania, Naples? Calabria? Sicily? Basilicata? Anybody have roots outside of that area? Any of the other 13 regions of Italy? That's pretty telling. Um, those seven modern regions constitute what, from the year 1130 until 1860, was called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. It was originally called the Kingdom of Sicily, and as I'll explain throughout here, it became eventually the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. We all know there's only one island of Sicily, so it's a little bit of a historical uh, curiosity as to how the name came to be the Two Sicilies, but I'll get to that. But the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, southern half of the Italian peninsula on the island of Sicily, if you read the news today, if you go to Italy today, if you talk to anybody about Italy today, I'm sure the images that are brought up about the south are not as inviting as the images that are brought up about the north, right? The north is the industrial powerhouse. It's well integrated. It's cosmopolitan. The south is agrarian and backwards and poor and corrupt. And for many of us, that is simply an identity that we accept and uh, that we either carry with us quietly or ignore. And I needed to dig further to understand why. So, well, first of all, Italian-Americans have been here since before there was the United States, right? There were Italians coming in small trickles from the earliest colonial period, the first Italian to make it to New York was a Venetian in like 1637, I think. I could be getting that date wrong. Um, but needless to say, there, there have been Italians here throughout the country. 
but the earliest immigrants were northern Italians primarily, and they were coming in artisanal roles, uh, merchants or artisans, craftsmen. But between 1884-5 and 1924, four million southern Italians came to this country. And when Italy was unified in 1861, the population of the south was 10 million. So 40% of the population of the south left. Yeah, in the years between 1879, 80 to 1925. Um, again, these little nuggets that you pick up as you explore that make you question why. So this idea that people were fleeing a place where you couldn't work, where there was no opportunity, where there was corruption, stayed with me. And as I started to dig, I realized this was not always the case. I just want to preface this by saying I'm not a historian. I'm a podcast host. I used to work at the National American Foundation. I'm not here to give you a, an academic thesis. I'm here to share my passion with my tribe because this is something that has sort of changed the way I look at my heritage and I, and I hope can uh, offer anybody here a little bit of something. But forgive me if we gloss over thousands of years of history in a brief amount of time, but I'm sure you guys have stuff to get home to. Obviously, the South has been the center of the Mediterranean economy for millennia. Before there was a Rome, the South was occupied by uh, indigenous tribes, people with names like the Samnites and the Ossetans, the Sikuli and the Lucanians, names that you might have heard of. But eventually, the real major immigration to come was the Greeks. Uh, south of Italy is considered part of Magna Graecia, the, the greater Greece. I, I probably said that wrong. Um, and there's always there's a saying throughout the South when you meet a Greek person, like one face, one race. We're kind of a, a, an appendage of the Greek empire. But it's really with the Greeks that uh, the South of Italy gets integrated into a wider European Mediterranean world. The Phoenicians come, eventually the Romans come, as we all know, and they uh, take them a while to conquer the South of Italy, actually. But they do. The South stays pretty Greek-speaking. The Romans love it because uh, in the coastlines of the south you have the best playlands you could ever ask for. In Sicily you have the granary of an empire and it integrates into the Roman Empire. Actually Sicily doesn't integrate as an equal province uh, until much, much later. So even then Sicily kind of was outside the, the idea of Italy. But it's a Greek part of the world. Naples, Neapolis is one of the oldest inhabited cities in Europe, a continuously inhabited cities in Europe. It's a Greek town. Uh, if you go to Agrigento, uh, if you go to Agropoli, some of the best Greek ruins, better than, than in, in Greece, as a matter of fact. If you go to Syracuse in Sicily, has anybody been to Syracuse? Have you been to the cathedral? So the cathedral in Syracuse has been continuously a place of worship since it was a Greek temple. If you go inside and touch one of the columns that's keeping the roof up, those are the same columns that have been standing there since it was a Greek temple. So you're really talking about a very different part of the world than, than uh, the rest of Italy. Um, at the fall of the empire, we come to this fractured uh, peninsula, right? Rome crumbles, invasions from all over the place, uh, barbaric tribes, and as you can see south here, south of the yellow papal states, where the pope was both pope and emperor, um, the South is split into dukedoms, principalities, 
the purple there is a little bit of the Byzantine Empire. And eventually Sicily is conquered by uh, the Saracens, Muslims from North Africa. So around the year 1000, the south is as fractured as the rest of the north. But our story kind of begins with, well, our story here is about this, the unified south begins with the arrival of a people called the Normans. I'm sure we've all heard of the Normans. Uh, their name is not very creative. They're the Normans because they were the Northmen. They were Scandinavians who eventually settled in the what's now Normandy in France. And the Normans were really, really prolific in three areas. They were prolific for their faith. They were prolific for their ability to wage war. And they were prolific for their ability to procreate. So this tribe with lots of kids, great warriors, and very pious, they went all over Europe as hired mercenaries. And eventually, the Normans are called down into the southern half of Italy. There's two stories about how the Normans come down to the south of Italy. So, like all good Italian facts, nobody can agree on what actually happened. But uh, some people say they were originally called to the Principality of Salerno, down there in the blue, um, to aid their prince uh, in defending against Muslim invasions. And the story goes that they went down there and uh, they were guests of the prince of Salerno and the Muslims arrived and they demanded a tribute. So the prince went to his uh, keeper of the, of the books, his uh, financier, and said, okay, this is what we owe them now. And, and these Normans, these giant strapping blonde Vikings, started to laugh at him and said, how, how could you be so weak to pay these people? We're just going to go out and take care of them. And they did. And the prince, uh, the Lombard prince of Salerno, was so overwhelmed by their ability to dispose of the enemy so quickly that he offered them a place in his principality. And they rejected him. Some people say, and this is the story that I prefer, they actually came down on a religious pilgrimage. Uh, they came down to a shrine called the Shrine of St. Michael on Monte Gargano in Puglia. Has anybody ever been? Yeah? So St. Michael is one of the oldest uh, pilgrimage sites in all of Christendom. And it's, a, it's where it's been said that the Archangel St. Michael came, uh, visited on faithful Christians, and left his spear. So it's been a... Uh, Tell us exactly where that is, please. In Monte Gargano, in Puglia, on the heel of... Almost where it looks like a spur. Near Lecce? Or? No, north of Lecce. North of Lecce. Yeah. It's uh, where it looks like the spur is coming off the Italian boot, basically. Okay. Yeah. Very mountains. And, yeah, very in the mountains. And uh, so these Normans, fresh off of uh, another war, come down to worship, and they run into a Lombard. The Lombards were a German people... That's where we get the name Lombardia, right? Lombardy, we're in, near Milan. Uh, who had occupied a lot of the center of southern Italy after the fall of Rome. And they run into a Lombard named Melisabari. And he basically says to them, look, you guys are famous for fighting. We could really use your help. Do us a favor. Help us expel the Byzantines once and for all. So the Normans, never shirking from a good fight, decide they're going to go back up to Normandy, recruit amongst their own, come back a year later and, and be part of this rebellion. And they do come back. And uh, pretty quickly thereafter, saw the incredible beauty of the south of Italy, 
the wealth that was there to, to be had, and kind of decided that they were going to stay. And uh, amongst the Normans that came was a family of three brothers. Uh, the Italian is Altavilla. I don't speak French. It sounds something like Otteville. I, I, I always feel like I'm doing a bad snobby accent when I try to speak French, but Otteville is the last name. And these three brothers, uh, the oldest of whom is named William, they are the last of like nine sons of an impoverished baron in Normandy. And they come down for this fight and fall in love with not just the beauty of southern Italy, but the financial possibilities. And they decide they're going to stay. And pretty quickly thereafter, the rebellion really became less about the Lombards versus the Byzantines and more about the Normans taking what they could get. And uh, the Lombards don't factor much into Italian history after this, particularly the South. And it's probably because they got eclipsed by the Normans pretty quickly and couldn't keep up with them in battle. So the Normans kind of take over this fight against the Byzantines. And eventually, and again, we're glossing over some really interesting history here, the Normans are able to take over huge swaths of the south, particularly up in Puglia, and they build a fortress at Melfi. I don't know if anybody's ever visited Melfi. The fortress is still there. Uh, and Melfi is essentially their mothership. It's where they're going to do everything out of from here on in. Plan to make themselves the Counts of Apulia. Eventually, they're able to make themselves Counts of Aversa, uh, Counts of Calabria. And so all these territories they start to accumulate over the south, obviously where many of us have our heritage, are formerly Byzantine, formerly Lombard lands that are now uniting around this Norman way of life. So in 1042, William is finally declared the Duke of Apulia. And uh, William, by the way, was known as the Iron Arm because he was so tough. These guys were like UFC tough. Uh, he went into one-on-one -on -one combat with the Emir of Sicily and defeated him with no shield, no weapon, no nothing, so he's known as the Iron Arm. Uh, so William the Iron Arm becomes a duke, and they also become kind of favorite defenders of the Pope, because if you think back to the map, the Papal States are sandwiched between the south of Italy and the Holy Roman Empire on top, and the Pope likes to play these parties against one another. So William and his younger brothers assemble these, these lands, and the Pope says to them, look, you really want to do me a favor. Go down to Sicily. It's been Muslim for 250 years. It's one of the most important lands in the Mediterranean. Take it back, and I'll make you the Counts of Sicily. So William's brothers, Roger and Robert, go down to Sicily, and they fight for 30 years to free the island from Muslim rule, and they eventually do. Takes them from 1061 to 1091. And Roger's second son, Roger, who you'll see in a minute here, becomes the Count of Sicily and begins to unite all of these lands together and expel the Lombards, the independent princes, the Byzantines, anyone who's there before him. And in the year 1130, he's able to be declared the king of Sicily. And this is Roger. Has anybody been to uh, Palermo? Been to the Mortorana church? Yes. This is the mosaic that's still in place in the Mortorana church. This is him being uh, crowned by Christ. And Roger was able to keep together a really fractured territory. And he was able to do this in a very savvy Italian political way. So Roger got caught in the middle of a papal crisis. There was a pope and an anti-pope. And of course, they were going to fight it out to see who was going to become the pope. And they all went out 
to gather armies, and the anti-pope, Anticletus II, he came to Roger. So Roger cut him a deal. He said, all right, I'll, I'll go to battle for you, but I want you to declare me the king of Sicily. Why is that important? Because this time, the idea of a kingdom was deigned from God, directly from the hands of the pope. And there was actually few kingdoms in Europe at the time. The king of England, the king of France. In Spain, you had minor kings, but don't forget Spain wasn't unified for another 400 years after this. So to be named a king, one of only a handful in Europe, was a great accomplishment, especially for the grandson of an impoverished baron. And Roger's able to do that. Now, he backed the wrong horse. Anticletus doesn't become the real pope, but to keep the Normans happy, the next pope actually gives them the right to maintain this kingdom. And Roger is famed for being one of the most enlightened kings in the history of the world. And it's from the beginning of this kingdom of Sicily, this whole southern half of Italy and Sicily, that the golden age of the Italian south begins. Uh, before the Norman conquest, as we mentioned, Sicily was Muslim. The southern half of Italy had Greek Orthodox Christians and Roman Catholic Christians had a healthy Jewish population, and where other monarchs might have seen this as a threat, Roger saw it as a great advantage. So Roger worked first and foremost as a builder. If anybody's been to Cefalu or Montreale or uh, the Capella Palatina in Palermo, I think that's the next slide. Some of the most beautiful architecture in the world was built by Roger and his, his heirs. Uh, Roger's crowned in Palermo. This is his coronation mantle. And it's a really great artifact. Roger was able to deduce, you could use the word steel, the secret at the time to silk making from the Chinese. He imported mulberry trees, he imported the right moths that, that uh, create the silk, and he created a whole silk industry in the South. This coronation mantle, as you can see, it uses the motifs of all of his uh, subjects. There's Islamic uh, prayers on the bottom. There's a, a lion, which is North African, uh, eating the camel. There's the Christian tree of life in the middle. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of artwork in the world, and it's still on display, but it's on display in Vienna. And we'll, we'll get to why that is in a second. But so Roger's incoronated in Palermo, the first king. If anybody's ever been there, the beauty of the Capella Palatina is it's got clearly Greek Byzantine mosaics, some of the finest in the if you were to see the roof above it, it's a wooden stag-type roof built by Islamic artisans with Christian prayers written in Arabic, and the floor is built in the Latin Roman style. So it's a combination of the three largest cultures that he had in his kingdom. It's really, if you haven't been, it's one of the most beautiful rooms in the world. It really does glow like this, and there's still mass there if you're inclined. Uh, I go every Sunday that I'm in Palermo, that's where I go to mass. Um, Roger was also a scientist. He was obsessed with knowing everything he could about the world. This is called the Tabula Rosarina. It doesn't look like the world, but if you get up close, it actually is. This is a map that Roger had commissioned. As soon as he became the king, he sent word to every port in the entire kingdom of the south that no matter who came in, from the youngest boy on a ship to the ship's captain, whoever came into port before they could do anything else, had to stop and give an interview about the land that they had seen on their travels, what the coast looked like, what the flora was, what the fauna was, what the people were like, what the interior was like. And from those descriptions alone, they built this map. 
he used Muslim cartographers that were in the kingdom, and you can kind of see he didn't. I guess I'll read from the light. He didn't get it that far off. This is Italy and Calabria and Puglia, Sicily, Spain and France and England, and then Greece. You can see the uh, Middle East. So you know, for for the year eleven forty. You're talking about a pretty accurate representation of the world based on oral explanation. So you really can't understand why this is a golden age for thought, for coexistence, and for art in the south of Italy. Roger's got heirs. His son becomes king after him. His name is William the Bad. He's called William the Bad because he was ugly. His son becomes the next king. He's William the Good. He's called William the Good because he's pretty. Uh, neither of them were particularly fantastic like Roger was, but William has no heirs. And so there's a crisis. So William's crown upon his death, unless he has a kid, will pass to his aunt, Roger's daughter, Constance. Constance was like an old maid. We all had that aunt, right? I had like five of them that lived with your grandparents, like they never got married. Well, that was Constance. And William, because he was a young kid, he wasn't very sophisticated, to kind of help get his aunt out of the convent that they had locked her in, agreed to let her marry the son of the Holy Roman Emperor, the German King Frederick Barbarossa. And of course, what the young King William didn't understand was Barbarossa was after his crown. So Barbarossa's son Henry gets to marry Constance, and sure enough, William dies not long thereafter, at like 23 years old. And Barbarossa's son Henry decides, forget his wife, he's going to make himself the king of uh, Sicily. So he runs down to take over the kingdom of Sicily. His wife trails after him. And now his wife is 40 years old. And she has to create an heir to this entire kingdom. Not just this beautiful kingdom of the south, but the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire in the north. So by some miracle, around the age of 39 or 40, she gets pregnant. And she's convinced that people are going to tell the world that her son is illegitimate because she's so old. So the day after Christmas, in the year 1194, she runs back in Italy from Germany, and right near Aversa, on the way down south, she sets up a tent in the middle of the piazza because she starts feeling pain. She builds this beautiful tent, and she invites all the women of the town in to see her give birth so they know her son is legitimate and not just some orphan that they kidnapped to make the king. And in the middle of that tent, this ticketed crowd, she gives birth to the future emperor, Frederick the Great, who the world has come to know as Stupor Mundi, the, the wonder of the world, another one of the most enlightened monarchs that the world has ever seen. Our story's not really so much about him, uh, but for the fact that he's really the last legitimate king of the south of Italy. Frederick, because he's now got to wear both of these crowns, right, because his one grandfather was the founder of this kingdom, his other grandfather was a Holy Roman Emperor, that guy's multitasking at a level I would never want to approach, and unfortunately for him, he gets caught up in the politics of papacy, he's been excommunicated multiple times, forced to leave crusades, had a pretty rough life. But upon his death, he has no heirs to give either of these kingdoms to. And so after a few years of intermittent war, the Pope decides he's tired of having a strong kingdom on his south, and he's going to hand over 
this gem of the Mediterranean to a more amenable family. So he calls in the, the Angevin family from France. He calls in the Duke of Anjou, and he hands him this crown. No consultation with the people. And keep in mind, at this point now, this is the most important kingdom probably in Europe. The best school of medicine is in Salerno. Um, Naples is bustling. Palermo is like the capital of arts and culture. And so the Duke of Anjou comes down in a very French way. He's thrilled. He's taking over. And in Naples, the people are okay. They, they kind of they dig him. But in Sicily, they want nothing to do with it. And so in the year 1282, on... Easter Monday, outside of Vespers at the cathedral, one of his French guards decides to get fresh with a Sicilian peasant girl. And her husband, brother, boyfriend, whoever it was, we don't know, he takes offense, he kills the guard, and a, a long overdue rebellion breaks out. It's called the War of the Sicilian Vespers. I don't know if anybody's heard of it, but it's a fundamental turning point. And it's how we go from a kingdom of Sicily to a kingdom of two Sicilies. So what happens is, Sicilians expel the French. They call a Spanish uh, prince, uh, Peter of Aragon, down. They ask him to be king. He comes down. They start fighting. Uh, the French Duke of Anjou is getting a little embarrassed by his losses, so he challenges Peter of Aragon to a duel. He invites him to Bordeaux in France. He says, you bring 100 knights, I'll bring 100 knights. They'll judge, and uh, the winner of the duel will become king of it all. They actually invite the King of England at the time to be the judge, and he wants nothing to do with this, and he says, no, you know, I'm staying in uh, London. But, of course, whether it was set up this way to save face or just the, uh, the timing of Italian history, they don't show up at the dueling ground at the same time. So now they both have the opportunity to save face and leave and declare the other one the coward, which they do. In the meantime, Peter has arranged for the son of Charles to be kidnapped. And so now he's got the, uh, the, the big piece on the game board. And so Charles eventually accedes to the idea that Peter's going to be the king on Sicily. So they have to go through all the medieval political wrangling. And the final declaration is that Charles, who's king in Naples, will keep the title king of Sicily, but he'll stay in Naples. And Peter, who's king in Sicily, will create the title king of Trinacria and stay on the island. So you have these two kingdoms. Then people start calling Naples the kingdom of Naples, and they call Trinacria the kingdom of Sicily, and everything's confused. So they start to refer to the whole territory as the two Sicilies. And that's how you have the kingdom of the two Sicilies today. Unfortunately, over time, what really happens is basically both of these kingdoms end up in the Spanish Empire. And with no resident monarch, things begin to really decrease. You have some great benefits to being in the Spanish Empire, some great negatives, but as you can see from this map, uh, in the known world at that point, this kingdom was at the center. And in 1453, does anybody know what happens in the Mediterranean in 1453 changes the whole game board? It's, a, it's, a, it's obscure. In 1453, the city of Constantinople falls to Muslim invasion after 700 years of, of war and cuts off all the trade to the east, which cripples the southern Italian economy. In 1492, as we just celebrated a few days later, the whole world changes when the Atlantic route is opened up and a whole new world of trade makes Sicily and the south of Italy even less important. Mediterranean trade almost completely dries up. 
and everybody's focused on the Atlantic trade for the new world. It's great for us because uh, we get the tomato and chocolate before most of the people in Europe do, so that's kind of nice. We perfected that, I think. But other than that, it's really kind of a, a downturn. So I think about the controversy around Columbus Day a lot, and uh, I get tired of getting beat up about Columbus. And sometimes I say to myself, boy, if Columbus never sailed, we'd probably still be in Naples and Sicily right now. So I'm not even sure how I feel about him anymore. <laughs> but needless to say, you have 500 years of decline until this family, the Borbone, or as we would say in English, Bourbons, arrive on the scene. And in 1734, Spain is ruled by the Bourbons. France is ruled by the Bourbons, right? Bourbons are a French dynasty. Uh, Louis the Sun King, he's like one of the greatest politicians of all time. He's able to machinate to send his grandson Philip to take over Spain in the War of Spanish Succession. And Philip marries, has a bunch of kids, his wife dies. And he goes out and he finds a second wife, really to keep him company, I guess, because he had so many kids. Uh, and he goes down to Italy, and he finds one of the most fascinating women of Italian extraction in the history of the world. She was like the ultimate Italian nationalist. Her name was Elisabetta Farnese. The Farnese family were the dukes of Parma and Piacenza, one of the wealthiest families, uh, originally merchant, then noble in Italy. She was also descended from the Medici in Tuscany. And Elizabeth is an incredibly driven, calculating politician. So she marries the king. She's a second wife. She has a bunch of kids, but she knows her kids have no prospects because they got a bunch of guys in line ahead of them to take over the throne of Spain and any good titles that are coming their way in the Spanish Empire. So she decides in, a, in what's called the War of Polish Succession, another reshuffling of the European game board, that her eldest son Charles, Carlo, Carlo di Borbone, she's going to send him down to take over what is her family's titles because she has one relative left and he's about to die. So Charles goes down, meets his great uncle in Parma and Piacenza, and the whole peninsula celebrates the arrival of this prince, and they're gonna make him the Duke of Parma and Piacenza. I'm shortening the history here, but essentially, the Italian peninsula gets so excited by this guy that he decides, you know what? There's a bigger prize that we have. The Spanish royal family had, up until about 80 years before, ruled Naples and Sicily, and he decides, after cleaning out the Farnese treasures in uh, Parma, he's going to march on down to Naples and conquer the south again. And he does. Wins a big victory in Bitanto and Puglia, and uh, recreates the Kingdom of Two Sicilies. He's the first king crowned in Palermo in hundreds and hundreds of years. And Charles is another incredible builder. Uh, anybody been to the Palace of Caserta outside Naples? One of the largest palaces in all of Europe. He built it to outshine Versailles, which his French cousins had built a few years before. If you're opera fans, he built within like two years the now oldest and largest opera house in Europe, uh, then largest, still oldest, in the Opera San Carlo in Naples. Has anybody been there? Yeah, San Carlo is like, if you, they, they built it, talk about technology, they put terracotta pods in the walls to make like the perfect. Uh, pitch and reverberation. Oh, this is the San Carlo, by the way. That's the Borbone stemma, the, the crest on top of the San Carlo. And as a matter of fact, that was just rediscovered about 20 years ago under the decades of paint jobs that restored. So the guy was absolutely an enlightened monarch. He built the largest hospital in the world for the poor in Naples. But by a weird circumstance, 
all of his brothers, his half-brothers from the king's first wife, die off before the king. And so eventually, Charles has to go back to Spain to become the king of Spain. He takes his eldest son. His second son is born very severely handicapped. So he leaves us with his third son. His son is Ferdinand. And Ferdinand is famously known as Rey Lazzarone, or Rey Nazone. Rey Nazone because he had one of the largest noses in the history of the world. Rey Lazzarone because the, the poor people of Naples were called the Lazzaroni. And he basically wanted nothing more than to be one of the poor people of Naples, but to have all of his luxuries. He was a great guy. Everybody loved him. He used to go play cards with the street urchins in Naples. Whatever he won, he'd give out to the poor. He loved to eat macaroni with his hands. He was famous around all the courts of Europe because he couldn't speak any language but Neapolitan. So he spoke in every court with every emperor and queen and king. He spoke Neapolitan and had translators do the rest. He used to pull the wigs off of visiting diplomats. His brother-in-law, the emperor uh, of the Holy Roman Empire, came to visit, and he forced him to give him piggyback rides around the palace. I mean, he was just kind of nuts, but in a really nice, eccentric way. Uh, unfortunately for him, he married another one of the toughest women in the history of the world, Maria Carolina, who was the sister of Marie Antoinette, and another really driven uh, Austrian uh, princess. Ferdinand's very popular. He survives two invasions from the French. First one in 1799, during the French Revolution. He's expelled to Sicily. The people don't revolt. It's actually a French, French invasion. And he brings in uh, Cardinal Rufo, the cardinal of the Ro Holy Roman Church, and he basically, with, with a flag and nothing more, tells the king, don't worry, I'll take back the kingdom. And he goes and builds what's called the Army of the Holy Faith. And he, starting in Calabria, where he was from, and the peasant army actually expelled the French. One of the unknown stories of the Napoleonic era, but it's really a great one, and one we Southern Italians should be proud of. Of course, the French are going through their own turmoil. Napoleon becomes the emperor. He invades in 1805. Pushes Ferdinand out again, forces him down to Sicily, and uh, names his brother, and then eventually his brother-in-law as the king of Naples. And Ferdinand survives in Sicily until Napoleon falls. But while he's down there, takes on this uh, alliance with the British, and the British begin to push him for a constitution for Sicily because the British love constitutions, even though they don't have one. And uh, he get he grants it, but he regrets that when he comes back. He comes back to Naples. And he decides the best way to do away with this constitution is to do away with the kingdoms. So he wipes away the kingdom of Naples and the kingdom of Sicily and creates, officially, the first time, the kingdom of the two Sicilies. So in 1816, he creates this new kingdom, no constitution. And he lasts until he's about 73, and he dies uh, in 1825, and uh, he's much loved around his kingdom. A, a great, goofy grandfather. His son, Francis, he only lasts five years. He was kind of a shamunid, if you know that word. Um, but he lasts five years. But his son, Ferdinand II, is the last king of Sicily to be born in Sicily. He's born during the exile. And so this print is released when he becomes the king. It's actually a, a depiction of him in Roger II's robes. So it tying him back to that golden age. And frankly, he does oversee sort of another golden age. He's... Uh, very young and popular when he becomes king. He's thought of as a liberal until uh, the revolts of 1848 break out. I don't know if anybody's ever studied 1848. 1848 is a year where basically every capital city in Europe just went into complete and insane rebellion. And of course, as most good things, it started in southern Italy 
uh, the Sicilians were the first to break out and revolt. But he puts the revolt down pretty quickly. When the Pope is chased out of Rome, he comes to stay with him in the Kingdom of Two Sicilies, and he kind of begins to turn away from liberalism. So he lasts till 1859. This is him with his family, and to his left, I guess our right, is his son Francis, who becomes the last king of the Two Sicilies. You can see clearly the difference between the two, right? Ferdinand's kind of a orangutan. Francis is kind of like a, a waif. But he's a great guy. His mother is Maria Christina of Savoy. She dies right after giving birth to him. She's now a blessed in the Roman Catholic Church and potentially on her way to sainthood. And he was raised pretty much as a saint. The people around the court used to say he was a priest masquerading in an oversized military uniform. But a very nice guy. But he's not up for the challenges that are facing him with the Italian Risorgimento. We all know the history of the Risorgimento a little bit, how Italy became a country, right? Essentially, so he, he gets married real young. He marries this beautiful lady over here. This is uh, Maria Sophia of Bavaria. And uh, they end up king and queen much quicker than they think they will. Right on the cusp of this great change throughout Italy. Italy's been advocating for unification for a long time. As a matter of fact, his father was once so popular, he was invited to become the king of a unified Italy, which he rejected because he didn't want to invade the Pope's territories in Rome. Uh, but now, the Savoys in Piedmont, they've gladly taken up this title. And they are fighting wars up throughout the north of Italy. They offer him a sort of alliance. He says no. He doesn't want to upset the Pope, like his dad. And so Garibaldi the famous Genovese adventurer, he decides he's going to take the moment and invade the South. And it's a lot that's gone on in the South beforehand that set the tone for this conquest. Most of the generals of the army were paid off. The British, who wanted access to Sicily's sulfur, to Sicily's uh, seaports, they wanted Sicily as a colony, essentially. They spread a lot of propaganda against the Bourbons. But needless to say, Garibaldi and his thousands are able to push the king and queen out of the kingdom, and they flee to a place called Gaeta. Anybody ever been to Gaeta? It's between Rome and Naples. It's a, it's a fortress now. And they make one courageous last stand with the loyal members of their army. They spend 90-some-odd days being bombed by the uh, Piedmontese navy. Uh, even the king and the queen go up to the ramparts, actually shoot, fight, it's the queen nurses the men that are in there, uh, but eventually they're forced to capitulate and flee to the town of, uh, flee to Rome, excuse me, live with the Pope. So you hear all of these up and down histories. You think about 1860 in the south of Italy, this idea that it was such a horrible place and Italy was such a blessing. But I just want to give you some facts of the south of Italy in 1860. South of Italy had the first legislated health care in Italy. Had the first daily newspaper, 1759. It had the first American consulate, not that that means that much to anybody but us, but I think it's nice. Had the first office of vaccination, first vaccines in Italy in 1802. First psychiatric hospital, first steamship. First institution for unemployment for those who couldn't work, state funded. First iron suspension bridge in all of Europe. Highest number of vaccinations in all of Europe. Highest longevity rate in all of Europe. This is, this is interesting. One person who reaches 100 out of all 946 
compared to the European average, one out of 11,996. First Italian Institute for Deaf and Dumb, first railroads in Italy, first gas lamps in Italy, first warship, first motorized washing machine, which I've never saw my Nona use one, so that must not have lasted long, but uh, they had it. First steamship to reach the United States from the Mediterranean, first electric telegraph in Italy, first electric seismograph in, Italy, in the world, uh, biggest navy, biggest merchant fleet, lowest taxes, uh, and this is kind of the most important fact. In 1860, this is kind of why the unification happens to begin with, because, believe it or not, Cavour, who was the architect of the unification, the, the Piedmontese prime minister, there's plenty of writings where he said, I don't want these people. I don't want, we, we don't want the South. It's barbarous, and it's Catholic, and it's old-fashioned. Uh, but the reason they wanted was because in 1860, the southern Italian gold reserves in the National Bank at Naples were the fourth largest in the world. So, I don't know how you translate ducats to dollars back then, but I'm going to give it to you in this number. They had 668 million lira ducats. All of the other Italian states combined, in the north, in the center, Tuscany, all of these wealthy places, only made up 433 million ducats. So the south was the economic engine, had the most factories in, in all of Italy, uh, highest percentage of workers, uh, workers' colonies in San Leuccio, the lowest percentage of childhood death, highest percentage of doctors per citizen, lowest taxes in Europe, and most importantly in 1860, had the lowest percentage of immigration in all of Europe. So, had immigration, I should say, excuse me. Nobody left. Yeah, they had nobody leaving. Now, as my partner on the show points out, that's not to say this was paradise, but, you know, this is the 1860s. I, none of us would probably want to live anywhere at that point in history because... We're a little bit spoiled. But it's not the barbarous, horrible place that history tells us it is, particularly Italian history. So how do you go from the lowest percentage of immigration in the world to 30 years later, one of the highest, the largest diasporas ever to leave a place, right? That's been my question forever. The factories are packed up and taken north. The gold reserves are taken. The church is suppressed. The Catholic Church was a huge part of Southern identity, Southern organization, because it was a poorest place, the church ran orphanages, the church ran schools, the church ran hospitals, and it's all closed. The lands of the church are taken away and redistributed for tax purposes, and the Northern Constitution is, uh, I'll say, imposed on the South. And for 10 years, and I'm sure most people have never even heard of this, if you have, I'm, I'm impressed and happy, Italy fights an undeclared civil war that is known in modern Italian history as brigandage. The southern brigands are these uh, thieves coming out of the mountains trying to uh, disrupt the civilization process that the unifiers have brought down. But really, it's an undeclared civil war. Most of them are old bourbon soldiers from the bourbon army. Whole towns are wiped out uh, in order to clean out one or two of the, of the freedom fighters. Another first, this one a lot less glamorous than the ones I just read you, the first concentration camps in all of Europe are in Italy. What are called brigands, southerners are called freedom fighters, were brought to Piedmont and Lombardia. There's one, which the name is escaping me, and I'm sorry that I don't have it on my mind, but it's still a public monument today. You can still tour it. And they were not death camps, but they were work camps, and uh, those that were there were experimented on. A lot of uh, eugenics was done to study the difference between northerners and southerners. There's a huge collection of southern Italian skulls still kept on display that they studied. Um, 
But needless to say, you can only pay so much. So 4 million of the 10 million person population decides to leave seeking a better life, either here or in Argentina or in the other areas that have taken in Italian so famously. Um, if you haven't read The Leopard, anybody read The Leopard? No? It's written by Giuseppe Lampedusa. It's the uh, most famous Italian novel of the 20th century. His grandfather, great-grandfather, was a Sicilian prince during the Risorgimento, and he sort of imagines his experience and writes it. It, it talks a lot about this, about the, the death of a civilization, frankly. And, you know, when we come to this country, we're still legislated as different than Northern Italians. So you can see when you go through records, there's Northern Italian ethnicity and Southern Italian ethnicity. And in 1924, it's the Southern Italian ethnicity and uh, Greek and uh, Sephardic Jews that are legislated against in the first immigration legislation in this country to, to put quotas on coming here. So we've been kind of uh, unwanted for a while, I guess. But Garibaldi, the great hero of unification, said not long thereafter what the Kingdom of Italy did to the South in the year uh, the Bourbons couldn't have dreamed of doing in 150, negatively speaking. So that history was, was relatively well known even then. But times changed, the country changed, Italy progressed, and uh, the history became forgotten. And the reason I got into this, and the last thing I want to leave you with, is a great book that I highly recommend. It's a little bit political, and I'm a pretty centrist person, so if you can take worth a grain of salt, the guy is kind of nuts. Um, but the facts that he uses are fantastic. The numbers, the statistics, it's called Tironi. Anybody know what Tironi means? Tironi is uh, it's a negative term used by Northern Italians today to describe Southern Italians. It means dirt people. Um, but many people have sort of taken it up as a badge of honor to be Tironi. That's the name of the book. It's available in English, and it's a great one. So I think of myself as a Tironi, I guess, and I find it really wonderful that the most negative thing that can be said about a people is that they're people of the earth. So thank you for having me. I'm sorry if it was long. Yeah. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that little snippet of Southern Italian history, getting to understand some of those facts and figures, most importantly, some of those statistics and some of those accomplishments in the South. I really wanted the opportunity to put those all out there like we didn't get to in the first episodes that we talked about Southern history. So I hope everybody enjoyed. It's been really fun to be in Cleveland and to do this, and I encourage everybody to come visit a great Italian community out here, uh, another great part of the tribe. So from all of us here at the Italian American Podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you next week for that great Columbus conversation we're all looking forward to. Have a great week, Paisani. We'll see you next time. Then to bring out your amore, you get chicken cacciatore. When your mama's a paisano, you have got the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian, if you want your life to be great. See that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian.